0: Three weeks ago, as Russian troops withdrew from the outskirts of Kiev in the north of Ukraine, reports started to emerge of horrific war crimes.
3: If there is one place in Ukraine which has come to symbolise the barbarity
4: of this war, it is Butcher. This was the first evidence of the crimes perpetrated here. The bodies of civilians left decomposing where they
2: fell.
0: Officials were called in to investigate, and so was an online collective of ordinary people around the world, a project born of the internet.
3: Bellingcat. 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 An independent collective of researchers who use open source and social media investigation to track events as they are right now with the war in Ukraine.
2: Essentially an online detective agency.
0: In Ukraine, we're watching a war play out in real time on social media. For many of us, that means doom scrolling through videos on Twitter and TikTok, trying to decipher what's happening on the ground. But what if you could harvest this information and use it to prosecute war criminals? Today we hear from someone who's doing just that.
4: I'm Elliot Higgins. I'm the founder and creative director of uh, Bellingcat, a open source investigation organisation.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Bellingcat, the internet sleuths keeping tabs on Putin's war crimes.
4: I think the one thing to understand about Russia is when it comes to lying, it's just something they do as easily as they breathe. They don't care about lying because that's just part of their kind of information strategy.
0: Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, has spent years diving into the weeds of Russian disinformation. From his home, on an ordinary suburban street in Leicester, He runs an organisation that uses open-source information found online to take on the Kremlin, disproving Russian lies as soon as they're disseminated.
4: Before the invasion, we had some examples where we, there's a video shared by separatists that they claimed showed Polish-speaking Ukrainian saboteurs. I don't know why they're speaking Polish, but they were attacking chlorine storage tanks and it was, you know, trying to make out it was going to be this chemical incident, which is part of the propaganda narrative. The video itself, you could barely see what was going on, but within the metadata of that video, they accidentally left all the details of how the video had been spliced together from two different videos. It even had the original file name of the video they downloaded from YouTube for the explosions. That was debunked very rapidly by a community of people online who just kind of saw different elements of it, and other people saw that and dived into it and picked that apart. A really, a big part of what I've been doing with Bell and Cat is making the point that this isn't just about individuals, it's about a community of people working together and. The internet is what connects us together and we've certainly seen with the conflict in Ukraine where that kind of idea of community has been very, very useful for debunking Russian disinformation and, you know, verifying lots of information coming from the conflict.
0: Tell us a bit about Bellingcat. I mean, how how did it come about?
4: I mean, it was really quite something gradual. When I started off, I I had no background in journalism or investigation. It was really, I just spent too much time on the internet arguing with people. And a lot of it was around 2011, the events of the Arab Spring, and a lot of denialism around videos and photographs that were being shared from Libya. And often people were saying, well, how do you know where this was filmed? I actually thought that was a reasonable question. So I started using satellite imagery to compare with what was visible in videos and use that to figure out exactly where they were filmed. And this became something that was very successful. No one had really been doing that before, and I started doing that just partly on the Guardian live blog for the Arab Spring, you know, in the comments every day. And it kind of just became something I started doing every morning. I'd get up and see what happened overnight. I started doing that as a blog, and at the beginning it was very straightforward. It was looking at a few videos, and I noticed that with Syria, no one knew what weapons were being used by the Syrian opposition forces. I taught myself to identify what those weapons were and wrote some stuff about that.
3: 3,000 miles away from the fighting in Syria, Elliot Higgins of Leicester, England, is a stay-at-home dad with an interesting hobby. He tracks the weapons of the war.
4: And as I was doing that, I built an audience of people who shared their own knowledge and expertise or reached out to me because I'd found something interesting that they were interested in themselves got to the point where I was every day systematically looking at YouTube channels that were being used by opposition groups, seeing what the latest videos were, and looking for things that were kind of new or different. So that meant in 2012, I found the first examples of barrel bomb use, which became very much associated with the Syrian conflict. I shared that with a journalist I knew who was working for the New York Times, and he spoke to various US officials and showed them the videos. So that became my first really big story. It was on the front page of the New York Times, and then that got quite a bit of international media interest, and it just kind of really grew from there.
3: He has no military experience or any background in weapons, but when he lost his admin job, he used the extra hours to start a blog under the handle Brown Moses after a Frank Zappa song.
4: I wanted to start a website and around that period, open source investigation, as we call it, had become increasingly well known when really two years earlier, barely anyone knew what it was. And I wanted a site where both people could learn how to do open source investigation and have an opportunity to share their own investigations. And that's what Bellingcat was.
0: The Bellingcat website once again has caught everybody short by being able to reveal the identity of supposedly secret Russian agents. Uh, It must be giving President Putin pause for thought. Why Bellingcat?
4: So Belling Cat is based off a fable called Belling the Cat. It's about a group of mice who are very scared of a large and ferocious cat. And they come up with the idea of putting a bell on the neck of the cat to warn them when it's coming. But they realise that no one has a real plan to do that and no one is brave enough to do that. So we're teaching people basically how to bell the cat at Belling Cat.
0: I remember covering the war in Syria, and you could very rarely get into it. As a journalist, you could very rarely get into Syria, so most of us were sort of gathered around the countries surrounding it and reporting from there. But everybody relied on, on your blog because you, you had such good intel about what was happening on the ground. Just t- tell us what you're doing at the moment on a daily basis with the war in Ukraine raging. How are you monitoring what's happening and what are you
4: seeing? So, a big part of what we have been doing over the last several years is developing a, pr- a process that is specifically designed around using open source evidence for legal accountability. And over the years, we've built a network of individuals and organizations who work on accountability. I've been on the International Criminal Courts Technology Advisory Board for a few years, where they've been really focused on using open source as evidence. And now we're in a position where We're collecting a lot of information from open sources, videos, photographs, and other reports. We're geolocating, verifying them, and we're putting them into a growing database of archived content that we make accessible to those accountability bodies. And that's kind of the first stage of what we're doing. Now we have this process that we've developed that not only archives the content we're seeing, like the videos and photographs, but it in fact records our entire investigation process. So in 10 or 15 years time, when we might be asked to go to court and explain this stuff, we can actually look back and see the entire process from start to finish.
0: One of the places we've already seen Russian soldiers withdraw and we've sort of seen the the trail of chaos left behind is is Butcher. Instantly, though, in what's sort of become the Russian playbook, there were stories in Russian media certainly saying that this was all a conspiracy theory, that the Ukrainians had laid out bodies after the Russians had left to make them look bad.
2: I would like to present you to the real facts about Butcher. During the time that the town has been under the control of the Russian armed forces, not a single local resident has suffered from any violent action.
0: For you, sitting at your computer in Leicester, what are you able to see? If if we were watching with you, what, what are you able to see that sort of helps you disprove that?
4: We've got quite a lot of information about that, actually. So the, the claims were that these bodies that were on the streets and filmed as Ukrainian forces and journalists came into the area had only appeared there after Ukrainian forces were there, with the implication being the Ukrainian forces were either killed them or placed them there was actually something that was quite easy to debunk because what we have is an awful lot of satellite imagery now accessible. And this satellite imagery is a high enough resolution that you can see these bodies as specks on the ground and actually line them up exactly with where they're appearing in these videos. And these images go back weeks before Ukrainian forces entered when Russia occupied it. We also had one of the local Ukrainian groups had been sending drones up on a regular occasion over the town, filming the whole area, and they've been sharing that imagery. And that clearly shows corpses on the ground going back you know, a number of weeks. You can look at the buildings and the structures, and that changes over time because it's a war zone, so buildings are destroyed. Mm. And you can compare that to satellite imagery and actually use that to date the drone imagery because you can tell yeah. on one date that building was there, you can see it in the drone image, and then on the next date... It's destroyed, and on the satellite imagery, you can see it's also destroyed. So, you have that kind of triangulation of the time and date when these things were filmed. So, it makes it more and more difficult for these denials to happen. Then, of course, you have the actual witnesses who saw these things and they explain what happened. So Russia can deny all it wants, and there's certainly a propaganda value to that, and it does have an impact in certain communities and in certain parts of the world. But when it comes to accountability and legal accountability, they can't stand up in a courtroom and say, oh, that's all fake news, because that's not going to impress any judge. I think with Ukraine, we've got probably one of the strongest kind of processes for accountability that's coming together. And if that doesn't actually happen with Ukraine and what's happening with the volume of evidence there is and how much work is being done, I I don't think we can ever expect accountability in any conflict.
0: a lot of your investigations have sort of inevitably ended up uncovering Russian misdeeds around the world. But it's not just the Russians that you go after. I mean, for example, in Ukraine, are you able to see if the Ukrainian armed forces are are behaving badly? Are you able to log that too?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been some incidents already that um, we've been looking into where irregular Ukrainian forces, of which there's quite a lot, um, have been involved in what appear to be extrajudicial executions of Russian troops. It seems less systemized than we've seen from the Russian side, but it still is something that needs to be investigated and those individuals need to be held to account. The process that we're using actually at the moment to do investigations using open source were, was originally examining Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, and we've been using those investigations to challenge UK arms exports to Saudi Arabia. Um, so whilst we're very much well-known for our work in on Russia, we do do quite a wide variety of topics. It's just the Russia stuff tends to be so kind of... You know, big. it kind of blots out everything else that we're doing.
0: You've been doing this for years now, ever since the Syrian war. And you've seen Russia operating in different theatres like Syria and Ukraine. I suppose Syria was also sort of the first time you must have experienced watching the violence, but also watching how the messaging is sent out and how the disinformation works with Russia.
4: Since 2016, the general impression is that Russia has a very sophisticated propaganda disinformation system. It's not at all. It's actually really dumb and stupid. It's just we've been kind of dumber, so it seemed impressive. I mean, time and time again, Russia makes a statement, and then a bunch of people on the internet figure out they're lying in a half an hour. There was a fake ID explosion, which they were using to show how vicious the Ukrainians were. And they had a car that had some bodies in it. And it was filmed by the kind of local pro-separatists, pro-Russian propagandists with YouTube channels. And one of them filmed the corpses. And these were like completely burnt skeletons. And it was pretty horrible to look at. But there were also very clear autopsy marks. So like the skull cap had been opened with a saw, a medical saw, and the rib cage had also been snipped over with medical shears. And a number of people pointed that out and we spoke to medical specialists and they said, yeah, these bodies have been autopsied. So they had effectively taken the corpses, put them in the car, fired a rifle into it as shrapnel, set it on fire and claimed that this was... Uh, IED attack, which was then kind of unquestionably reported and shared on YouTube and the Russian media. But it was all fake. But this is kind of the levels they'll go to. They'll take corpses and desecrate them so they can use it for propaganda.
0: I mean, that's so interesting because we just don't expect countries to do that
4: yeah it's it's i it, you have to understand with russia i mean it, it surprises a lot of people, but after you know working on Syria for ten years, it's no surprise to me that they there's absolutely no low that they won't go to to produce propaganda and disinformation, and they'll do it at the drop of a hat. They lie about stuff they don't even have to lie about. It's just such a part of how they operate that they'll just make stuff up just because that's what they do. They don't have to. The truth is not part of their calculus. It's just about getting a message out there that shows that they're innocent.
0: For you, as you monitor these war crimes, as you're sort of recording them, does it affect
4: you? When you're looking at this imagery, even if it's remotely, it's still very disturbing. It can have a psychological impact. So it's very important for us that we have that examined. Vicarious trauma is a really big issue. I think some people do sometimes think it's about how tough you are, but it's really not about that. It's about how an individual psychology can process just like really horrific imagery. I think for me over the years, because it's also being accompanied by, you know, a sense of, I guess, growth in the field of open source investigation that it's not just about looking at horrible images it's about using those images to actually seek accountability and if you know that's being used for accountability that's something that's very useful it doesn't a lot of it comes from a sense of powerlessness seeing those images but it also concerns me now that there's such a large community of people online searching for that imagery and sharing it that they may not realize the damage that they're doing to themselves so more thing we've do, been doing at Banning Cat is sharing information about vicarious trauma because a lot of people don't realize it's their thing they yeah. don't realize that if you're kind of doom scrolling on Twitter all day looking at war crimes on from Ukraine, that can have a deep psychological impact, even though you might not recognize it as it's happening. We have a very open culture about talking about that and making sure that people can feel that they can find help with those kinds of issues. So we try and make people aware of that.
0: You you also done some work with Navalny. Tell us a bit about that.
4: So Navalny is a Russian opposition leader. He's probably one of the biggest threats to Putin at the moment. He works for an organisation called FBK, which does a lot of investigations into corruption in Russia. And he has been a fawn in the side of Putin for a very long time. In 2020, in August, he was poisoned. He was on a flight going home for an event when he suddenly became extremely unwell, screaming in pain. This was like caught on film by people on the plane. And then the plane turned around, landed. And he was treated on the ground and he was given something called atropine, which is uh, for countering nerve agents, which fortunately someone was clever enough to give him, because if it wasn't for that, he would have died. And in fact, had the plane kept going to its destination, he probably would have died from that poisoning. Through the phone records of those poisoners, we were able to discover they'd been phoning scientists, and these scientists were working for a place called the Signal Institute. In fact, all the scientists who worked there were members of Russia's chemical weapons program, and they were communicating with the poisoning teams involved with multiple poisonings before the poisonings were taking place. So it was pretty clear there was some connection there. And we basically used, we got their like travel records and all kinds of information about them. And that just gave this whole nexus of information that allowed us to track their movements. And that allowed us to identify the FSB team that was following Nirvani for a, a couple of years and followed him on the day that he was poisoned. and. Because with these phone records, you get details not just of who they're calling, but also which cell phone tower they're pinging with their phone, with coordinates of where that tower is. You're able to actually trace their routes quite, you know, granularly, and that allowed us to identify that they travelled following Navani multiple times and on the day of the poisoning. Then, once we discovered that, we contacted Navani's team. Funnily enough, through Twitter, we say, "Hey, we think we know who poisoned you," and we started talking to him, and we worked with his investigation team. And that led us to calling up the members of the poisoning team.
3: With the help of the Bellingcat investigative website, who had identified some of the team which had been trailing Navalny, he called them up.
4: And the first few didn't want to talk to Navalny, but then we got one guy who Navalny managed to trick into believing that he was actually one of his superiors assistants, and he needed a very urgent status report on the poisoning to give back to his superiors.
3: He pretended to be a senior security official investigating the poisoning operation.
4: He's like saying, oh, I need to talk to you. My boss has told me I need to talk to you. It's a really, really urgent you know, thing. We have to make this report. And the guy's like saying, oh, well, I can't do it on an unsecured phone. He says, look, it's really urgent. We can't deal with that at the moment. <laughs> Any time we try to make it more secure in the barn, he was like, no, we can't do that. It's really, really urgent. We have to do this now. And the guy then just gave this very detailed explanation of everything.
3: He got a full confession. Here's an excerpt from the phone call. Okay, then tell me what kind of clothes it was applied on. What was the main focus? What's the riskiest piece of clothing in theory? Well, underpants. Underpants.
4: Navani asked him to give him like performance assessments for his fellow team members, and the thing is that gave us lots of information we knew, but also additional pieces of information that we didn't know. For example, he, the guy we were speaking to, was part of the cleanup team, so he was talking about how the clothes of Navani were removed and cleaned whilst he was in the hospital. So whilst he was taken away from his family, they were covering up the evidence of what had happened. But you know, the poisoner told us details like the poison was applied to the kind of seam of the crotch of his underwear and that this guy was responsible for kind of scrubbing the poison out of his underpants after the poisoning took place
0: coming up how russian soldiers on tiktok are inadvertently helping war crimes investigators but first i'm anthony lloyd
4: war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of
2: our times.
1: Right at home.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Elliot Higgins and his team at Bellingcat are being helped in this project to gather information on Russian war crimes by the Alfred Landecker Foundation in Germany. They focus on fighting disinformation online, And Silke Muller is their deputy CEO.
3: I used to work as a journalist for the past 15 years. I worked on the foreign desk of a national German newspaper. I covered the rise of populists over Europe, the rise of conspiracy theories, the rise of anti-Semitism. And I kind of switched professions because I felt we need to do something about the framework. We need to uh, defend democracy and do something about the framework to change things. When did you first become aware of the work of Bellingcat? How did
0: how did you get involved together?
3: I actually cooperated with Bellingcat as a journalist before ah. we funded them as a foundation. That was actually in 2014 when Russia invaded, unofficially, you know, then the east eastern part of Ukraine the first time. And there was mentioning of green men and soldiers without uniforms. Yeah, there. so this is the, li- the little green men, the
0: sort of the Russian soldiers who weren't official. They, they weren't wearing their uniforms, but they that- were clearly... Working for the Russian government.
3: Exactly. There was so much information, you know, flowing in from there. And we were so happy to cooperate with Bellingcat because, I mean, they tap into this huge network of independent investigators and they're experts for all sorts of things. They're satellite traffic intercepts. They uh, have people who know exactly when you've got uniforms with military insignia, what they mean. So this is when we cooperated the first time and I got to know their work. I mean, this is probably the first war that is transmitted in real time, also via social media. We can see with all the material coming out of Bucha, for example, where it's highly likely that war crimes were being committed. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, has already launched an investigation. So we can really see how... The work of Bellingham and the open source community is contributing to closing this delay in, you know, first the atrocities need to happen and then years later, maybe investigations start. That has
0: always been a major frustration, hasn't it? Sort of the, the time lag. Either people die before they're held to account or they, they just, they, you know, the, the cases never seem to quite get to the, the point where there's enough evidence for some reason.
3: I mean, I was, as a reporter, I was in Rwanda and in Srebrenica. And I mean, seeing how Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian autocrat, after having spoken to so many victims there on the ground, so many women who have uh, suffered rape, families who have lost people, hoping that justice will be served eventually. And then seeing how just took far too long and Slobodan Milosevic, the perpetrator, actually died before a verdict could be reached. I think that was detrimental to everyone hoping to see justice being served and accountability uh, to happen. So these, these things need to happen faster. And I would really hope that this would speed up things. I mean, the, the, the great thing with some of these
0: open source investigations is that it does shock people. It does raise awareness.
3: Yes. I don't know whether you're aware, but there, there was a law introduced in Russia that's called Lex Belenketch. Oh, really? Yes. What does that do? Lex Belencat means Russian soldiers are prohibited from taking and posting pictures on social media with their weapons. It's a perfect example how the work of organizations such as Bellingcat are effective.
0: So they, they understand the danger of open source information. They're trying to combat it already.
4: It was all really caused by the fact that we were using Russian soldiers' own videos and photographs to identify, first of all, their involvement with the shooting down of MH17, and then their broader involvement in the conflict in eastern Ukraine. And this led to this law being passed that directly addressed that by making it illegal for Russian soldiers to share any information about their military service online. And it's been somewhat effective, but it was one door closing when there's about four million open doors that we can step through and find other angles into what we're trying to do. But then we had a new opportunity through TikTok. I mean, TikTok became a hugely useful resource <laughs> for investigation because it's a popular app in Russia. Russians are sharing videos all the time and they're trying to get likes and clicks. And what was very popular... E- even were when visions.
0: they're
4: going into war? Yeah, well, yeah. Russian people at the side of a road would see a military convoy and see some interesting looking military equipment and share that. And then organisations like Bellingcat would hoover that information up, figure out where it was filmed, which military unit was being filmed, and use that to build data about Russian military movements. And that actually was very, extremely useful for understanding that the military build-up w- was not just your normal kind of military exercise, as Russia was claiming, but involved military units that w- and non-military units that had no real reason to be part of a military exercise, but certainly would be part of an invasion. In one sense, that was kind of the best intelligence you could get about Russian troop movements at the time.
0: It was right on the ground, and you were able to see it.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is it. You you have millions of people who are effectively acting as sensors of detecting information, sharing it, and making it accessible to groups like Bellingcat.
0: How much do you think this will change things?
4: I mean, it's always hard to tell. We always see the open source work we're doing as complementing the work of accountability bodies rather than trying to replace any of the work they're doing. I think a lot more opportunities for accountability at the moment. We're already seeing in those locations where Russian forces have pulled out that there are international investigators doing good forensic investigative work into these locations. There's a lot of information being gathered, not just from witnesses, but from physical evidence. Things like CCTV cameras that were running before the invasion was happening is being used and collected as evidence. There's vast amounts of information. In one sense, it is a big data management task. It's about how do we make this searchable and useful for those organisations who need to use it.
0: And having seen what Russia has done in the past in Syria and in Ukraine in 2014, what are you most worried about happening in Ukraine now?
4: I mean, the most worrying thing, in a sense, is already happening in Maripol. I mean, the city has been completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, Maripol is going to be in, in, uninhabitable for years until it gets rebuilt. If that happens again with Odessa, and the Russians again have announced that they're trying to basically capture the entire Ukrainian coastline so they can connect Russia to Transnistria and Crimea. I mean, if they, they're trying to do that, they're going to have to go through Odessa, and that's going to be an equally violent and destructive Attack, And this is, I think, what we're going to see time and time again. And I think this is why it's very important that Ukraine has a lot of support because Russia is trying to carve out large parts of Ukrainian territory. It's very clear their initial plan was to overthrow the government and basically take the entirety of Ukraine, but that's failed and they've had to just targets certain parts. But if there's a land cor- corridor to Crimea and then through the entire Ukrainian coast, it'll cut Ukraine off from the sea and not become a rump state. And if Russia feels it can get away with doing that in Ukraine, it's going to be very clear that they can feel they can get away with it doing it in other countries as well. And I, I, I really think they can't be allowed to succeed and they can't be allowed to get away with the war crimes that they've been committing.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Bellingcat founder Elliot Higgins, and the deputy CEO of the Alfred Landica Foundation, Silke Muller. The producers today were Katie Tarrant, Taryn Siegel, Will Rowe, and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.